Brought to you by CareFeed, Senior Community's central place for seamless communication and engagement with their residents, families, and staff. CareFeed's HIPAA Secure Communication Platform digitizes and automates antiquated processes like paper admission agreements, satisfaction surveys, and care notifications, and seamlessly distributes them via text, email, or voicemail. Learn more at carefeed.com. Hello and welcome to the Glowing Older Podcast, where we interview experts on innovation in senior living and the business of aging well. I'm your host, Nancy Griffin, and I'm so excited to be here today with Marvell Adams Jr., founder and CEO of W. Lawson. Welcome to the program, Marvell. Thanks so much for having me, Nancy. It's really a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, well, thank you. I've been a big fan of uh, the things that you've written um, through your board uh, positions and your LinkedIn. So before we dig into all the hot topics uh, that I really want to ask you about, um, tell us about your background and how you got started doing what you do. Oh, gosh. So I guess the shortest version of that is uh, I um, did a report on Alzheimer's disease in, in ninth grade, uh, which is is a is a unusual uh time for someone to decide they're going to devote their their life and their career to serving older adults Nancy. but <laughs> but uh as i've found over the years that me being unusual is is probably the norm for me so i'm okay with it uh so you know uh was was fascinated tragically by a disease that could steal your memories and and you know um and so Decided I wanted to go to med school, become a physician, a geriatrician, as well as a researcher. And I, you know, I bumped up against, uh, I didn't even make it to organic chemistry. I think it was chemistry 212. And, uh, you know, a, a very um, critical uh, moment took place with a, a very important mentor who, to this day, I, I uh, have dinner with when I go to Charleston. Um, said, you know, you're not going to be a doctor. I mean, like you can keep going, you can, you can keep heading at this if you want, but eh, you really might want to talk about it. And so, uh, you know, the individual put me on a track of you can you and, and I, I can remember sitting in Dr. Ford's office uh, and um, and they're saying, you know, you can still care for folks. You know, I way the way I put it is, I want to be able to make a living, but also I want to be able to, uh, in in the way that words I put it, care for my mom. And I and I was meaning bigger than that, you know. It was, but it was a double meaning: care for my mom literally, and care for my mom as the larger metaphor. Right. And uh, and she said, "You can do that." She said, "But I think you would be far better suited for for administration." And and why don't we figure out uh, how to get you on that track? And so, over seemingly a relative short period of time, I was, you know figured out that um, I wanted to go to administration, found the the program that I wanted to get my master's through, which was at Chapel Hill. And, you know, my progression uh, years later, Nancy, I realized just how significant a lot of events have been in the last, uh, you know, couple of decades over my career. Uh, one being I trained to become a nursing home administrator at Monroe Community Hospital in Rochester, New York, which, um, for many people, is not a very known location, but it is historic in a in a couple different contexts. One, uh, T. Franklin Williams, who really is the 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 father of of geriat geriatrics, 
Uh, he was the medical director there. He uh, was a part of the University of Rochester Medical Center. But his wife, uh, whose name is a bit more famous, I think, nowadays in, in circles, uh, Carter Williams, um, who started the Pioneer Network, who had their conference this week in Denver, uh, really was a, a game changer for me. I mean, I was an intern there and they took me to lunch. And, and you know, it was probably 15 years later when I realized just how tremendous that was to sit there and, you know, and, and, and to hear Carter ask me questions about what I want to do and why I went into this field and her to share, you know, her insights on resident directed supports and services about how this, the, the notion of home in nursing home is what we really need to be focusing on. Um, and it, it was just this endearing moment also to watch her, you know, uh, lean over to Frank and, 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 and say, turn up your hearing aid, you know, cause he was having trouble <laughs> uh, hearing us, you know, and it's just like it, it, so, so, you know, over a career, I stayed in Rochester for, uh, my wife and I for, uh, gosh, I think we we're there seven winters. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was plenty. Um, but uh, have spent my career devoted to working in the not-for-profit space, which is a commitment from day one. My first job offer after I got my license was from Genesis Healthcare. And I held them out there for like a week. Like I just, I was so torn because I'm like this, you know, I, I needed a job. <laughs> I couldn't, I, my AIT was over, but I held off and, and I just decided. And then at the right moment, a, an opportunity opened up in Rochester at the Highlands of Pittsburgh, which also was a part of the University of Rochester Medical Center. And to this day, um, I, I have such deep rooted connections to people that devote, devoted their careers also to serving older adults. So it's, it's just, it's been kind of this full circle because now after years uh, later, after having lunch with Carter, after being uh, at a, a Pioneer Network conference uh, a few years after that, I come full circle back to a Pioneer Conference the first time since Carter had passed away a few years ago. And I'm on the Greenhouse Project Board, which just merged or uh, uh, yep. partnered with Pioneer Network. So yes. you, you kind of see this is this is uh, it, it, it almost I wouldn't have believed it years ago if someone would say this is the progression that, that things would take. But but here we are. Well, and you have held several corporate and uh, big, big time corporate positions. You're, you're don't seem like the kind of guy that's going to name drop here, but uh, we can read the bio off. Uh, most recently, I think was COO of Kendall Corporation correctly, but before um, W. Lawson. You got it. Yeah. I served yeah. Um, as CEO, well, CEO of Collington, which was, which was a new, newly uh, affiliated Kendall um, community in the Washington DC area. So that was back in 2011 and um, and then received a was promoted to the position of chief operating officer within the Kindle Corporation. So uh, within the system uh, and with our CEO, uh, Sean Kelly. So, uh, you know, you fast forward after, gosh, how long did I do that? I did. I was at Collington for seven or eight years and then chief operating officer of Kindle for almost four years. So a good, you know, over a decade with the Kindle Corporation and having been attracted to that organization when John Diffie was president and CEO and and really feeling the values of the organization being so strong and um, and wanting to 
understand how we can infuse that sense of every person's voice matters and the sense of equality, sense of equity, um, and how do we do that um, broader? Um, and so I find myself now as founding CEO of W. Lawson because uh, I will spend the rest of my career, I'm determined, Nancy, creating communities of inclusion and belonging where we, we really face some of the, the more difficult parts of our industry, which is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do in aging services is for a particular clientele, uh, uh, a, a more affluent clientele, a more homogenous uh, um, from a race and ethnicity background, national origin. And so, um, you know, where I am now is creating those communities of inclusion and belonging in a way that not only is accessible for those that we serve currently, but looking through the whole spectrum. How do we break down the socioeconomic barriers that, that come along with older adult living? How do we meld that with things like greenhouse project, uh, low and affordable housing? Um, there, there are so many aspects of aging services that work really well, but we've, we've over the years gotten also really well at keeping them very siloed. And it, uh, it's my charge um, as founder and CEO of W. Lawson to find ways to not only break down those barriers and silos, but essentially walk into a new paradigm, which is <clears throat> just a simple look at the demographic shift in, a, in, the, in the US from a census data standpoint shows that um, you know, we, we have communities right now being built in parts of the country uh, that really the bread and butter is still going to be affluent white individuals. Um, but not in, in, in the, in the short future, I'm not going to say not in the too distant future because it's not, it's, it's, it's soon, you know, by 2040, the, the demographics change so dramatically and continue to change for the 65 plus population and the 55 plus population that you start to see a decline in our bread and butter clientele. The, the, the number of uh, uh, 65 plus white uh, individuals and particularly 65 plus white men starts to decline pretty precipitously. And ironically, almost on a one to one basis, uh, starting around 2040 ish, you have an increase in uh, individuals representing or identifying as two or more having two or more racial um, uh, ethnicities. And the inclusion part of this is starting to be undeniable. And in my opinion, part of the reason I started W. Lawson is to recognize that our demographics, our workforce, our governance structures, um, every aspect of aging services is really jumping up and down saying, this is changing dramatically. And if so, then what is our strategy to be more inclusive? Because without that strategy, we will see such a decline in our ability to serve older adults because those looking for our services will very quickly start to say, you, you aren't giving us what we want. The baby boomers have been really clear. I could imagine my generation, which would be Gen X, is going to be even clearer that if, if there's not an inclusion strategy, if there's not an opportunity to really understand how do we reach more individuals? I mean, right now, um, 
gosh, I think if you add up every service uh, that's provided to older adults, you still only touch about 22% of, of the 65 plus population currently. So yeah. you're not talking about a, 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 a lack of opportunity, put it that way. But inclusion, in my opinion, um, the notion of human longevity being inextricably tied and really dependent upon inclusion, because without that strategy, the market that 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 that's traditionally sought after um, starts to dry up, and without being able to make the true value-based case statement, we are inclusive and we are creating communities of belonging, not just for residents, but for the staff that serve alongside them, for the boards that are that are governing uh, the organization, and in particular for the leadership across these organizations, which. Typically, there is a difference in the background and um, uh, diversity when you look through those different levels of the organization I just mentioned. Yeah, and you know, you um, you've been what I call a disruptor from the inside, which is my perfect guest. You know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't come around like you know making fights with the industry, but I do think that. The industry needs to listen to the voices that uh, that really um, stand for change, and and you're one of them. And I I loved how your LinkedIn uh, you described yourself as angelic, an angelic troublemaker, in reference to social <laughs> activist Bayard Rustin. So can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? Yes, you know, so uh, <laughs> it wasn't purposeful in the sense of the evolution of of, of discovering. Uh, Bayard Rustin, because I was not really, I was not aware uh, of, of Bayard and his legacy. Um, but, you know, the, what I'll share is that, that uh, gosh, probably a year or so ago, um, Katie Sloan uh, and others at Leading Age had invited me to be a part of a, um, a collaboration that was starting to come out of the, starting to, to, to grow between uh, the United Negro College Fund and the Leading Age and historically black colleges and universities, because the recognizing that, as you well know, uh, uh, Nancy, you know, leadership within aging services is is pretty white and 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 not mostly male. Well, I should say it is mostly male. Yeah. But women are 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 not as disproportionately represented, even though it's still disproportionate because there's more men. I mean, there's more women than men. Right. Um, but still, when you look almost of all other aspects of diversity. You really, again, have a pretty homogenous leadership structure. And so um, this effort with this partnership uh, that I was a part of really inspired me to learn more. And as I realized from historically black colleges and universities, um, I went down a rabbit hole of just research and discovered that, that um, the first historically black college in the, in the U.S., Cheney University in Philadelphia, um, one, Bayard Rustin, went there. Um, he went to two historically black college universities in his lifetime. One was Wilberforce in Ohio, and the other was um, Cheney in Philadelphia. But for for that depth of knowledge and and understanding, what really got me intrigued was this notion that a a Quaker. So keep keeping in mind that that as when I was working for Kendall, Kendall being rooted in Quaker values, being started by Quakers, and the sense of equality and equity being so important, that that I was intrigued to learn how did a historically black college get started in Philadelphia, um, in in gosh, 
in the early 1900s, maybe. Um, I mean, it almost makes no sense because you're like, well, that, that you know, slavery was not that far away having <laughs> happened, you know, there. <laughs> and so um, it, the Cheney State was actually started by a gift from a Quaker philanthropist, a $10,000 gift. And as I started to really research, I found that the Quaker roots, and when I say Quaker roots, I really mean the values around Quakerism. Um, so it's less of a faith-based kind of pitch that I'm talking about and more of a values-based one. But all the same, uh, Bayard Rustin uh, was raised Quaker by his grandmother. He was born in Westchester, um, Pennsylvania, which uh, essentially uh, used to be near the headquarters of the Kendall Corporation. Um, and his legacy is so rich when you really start to discover not only was he this chief strategist behind the March on Washington with Dr. King, he was uh, the strategist behind the bus boycotts down south. He was a, a, a conscientious objector from day one. And, you know, the history books, even though they really tried to wash him out of it, and I'll mention why in a second, he had such a critical role in being a student of Gandhi, meaning that he spent time with Gandhi, uh, you know, in India and coming back to the States and saying to Martin Luther King Jr. and many other civil rights activists, nonviolent protest is, is how we have to do this. Now, he was a pacifist. And so uh, it was a natural thing for him being a Quaker that nonviolent resistance was going to be um, uh, how this this uh, civil rights uh, movement was, would be successful during that period in time. And uh, he convinced Dr. King of it. Uh, and so you you step back and say, who is this individual? And, and, and Bayard Rustin was in the 60s and 70s, a black male, Quaker, openly gay, and in a, uh, his, his, his life partner that he met in the 70s, I believe 70s, uh, Walter Nagel, was half his age and white. So think about all the areas of hate that go around that now and then place that into the construct of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. That's who Bayard Rustin was, and he was unapologetically open about himself because his notion was we cannot, we cannot fight our ways to continued segregation. That's not what we're fighting for. We are fighting for freedom to be able not only to have integration, but to be who we are. Um, and so for him, he was always himself, openly gay uh, and, and, and truly a, um, a trailblazer. But the history books weren't kind to him. You know, as the civil uh -huh. rights movement really started to take off, um, he began to be left behind because he was a gay man. And at the time, being a gay man was 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 problematic across the United States, but but in in black communities, it was not well accepted at all. In fact, it rejected uh, um, uh, being a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. So, Byard became, as um, a good friend of mine had said, you know, Margot, it sounds like you found your mentor, even though he passed away many years ago. Um, and that's 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 the beauty uh, of of kind of this understanding of how inclusion and belonging can really be not only a strategy but a must do because i reached out to there's not a few many places with with Bayard's name on it um 
And thankfully, Walter, his, his surviving partner, has been very selective of what things that Bayard's name goes on. But there's a place in Princeton, New Jersey called the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice, and their focus is around LGBTQIA youth. And as we understand well, that, that many um, uh, youth, particularly if they come out of the closet and they are not accepted by their families, you know, homelessness uh, is, is a, a highly impactful thing for the community. Um, and in many other challenges that, that really had made the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice uh, uh, a rock solid organization in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, I reached out to them and told them this vision of creating communities of inclusion and belonging. And we agreed to partner together to create um, Rustin communities. And they, oh, wow. They, yeah, That's yeah. So cool. It's it's um, and and we, we we still have a little ways to go, but the, but one of the things we agreed to immediately is that they are uh, have a strategy of of creating satellite locations for the for the uh, the social justice center, and so we agreed to is that no matter what because everything's you know gets complicated, but as we as we build community that we've committed to include in each design um, a satellite location for the the Bayard Rustin Center for social justice, so that not only are we talking about older adult inclusion, we're talking about breaking down the walls of ageism as well, because age segregation is something we also do really well in our industry. And it's being rejected over and over again of older adults saying, I do not want to be put behind gated, you know, a a gated fence with a bunch of other old people. (laughs) It's not the life I'm coming from. My life I'm coming from has grandchildren in it, has people, you know, uh, 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 of all different generations, has, has, has an ethnicity and a diversity and, a, and an absolute inclusive nature, should they have chosen it for their lives. And so more and more, this, this aspect of the field that we're trying to convince to move into and, be, and live in community are saying, we don't, we don't want to. And, and for a whole host of reasons, but one of those is we reject the notion of age segregation and segregation in general, and thus the model itself really is being disrupted, um, as you mentioned before, in a pretty substantial way that um, ironically leaves the field with an opportunity that, that it can choose or not, because, yeah, there'll always be folks that are interested in moving into retirement community, as we, as we call them right now. There will always be individuals that need affordable housing and that there will be individuals that are older adults that that are that middle market. But my bet, um, and it's a good one, I think, is is that that there is more of a growing tide of older adults uh, and Gen X sandwich generation individuals, which means individuals that are caring for an, uh, an aging parent as well as a child uh, that may be in the home or that they have an, uh, an adult child that they still have a supportive responsibility for, and they're squeezed in the middle. And so how do we start to create community that recognizes we have to support the whole person, we have to support the whole community, and we have to really say to older adults, we are here to serve you and everything you love, because anything short of that means that we really are not going to be successful, because at the end of the day, having a, a strategy of inclusion, in my opinion, it, reached, it leads to the, to the road that um, is really the last, the breaking down the very last acceptable ism in our country, which is ageism. Yeah. Highly, highly yeah. accepted to be ageist. 
And, and so it's, it's to some, I've heard folks say, well, you know, it's really tough and, you know, diversity and it's always in really, how do we do it? It's like, well, look, we, we've been the, our higher industry uh, uh, are the victim of, of ageism and we are part of it. So we do have a call to action against isms of all kinds. Uh, and at the very least, there's a, a firm understanding amongst everyone that ageism is the one ism, Nancy, that you may not understand it now, but you will eventually. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. And I'm assuming that a decade ago there you weren't having as many of these conversations. And, you know, now you're on the board of Greenhouse and Leading Age. And of course, Greenhouse is working with Pioneer. So are you finding the things that you're passionate about that you've been passionate about for what, 10, 20, 30, 30 years, whatever, are finally being brought to the forefront? So do I think, are you, so do I think that, that the, the, the inclusion and belonging are coming forward uh, and being talked about more? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yes. But. Um, we we've we 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 had and I I mean the you know the 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 royal we if you would we have built you know over the last few decades um, a field uh, meaning aging services that is like many other parts of our infrastructure um, whether it's socially whether it's financially where there there is systemic racism that exists that there is uh, systemic sexism that exists and, and battling that and truly standing up and saying, this is enough, that it is time for us to realize that if not now, if not us, then, then who really is going to take this charge to be able to say um, to, to all of us that look to create community, that if you don't have a, a strategy of inclusion, what are you really saying to those that you're recruiting? So I always look at this, uh, if you just look at kind of the hard numbers, uh, I did a talk, I don't know if it was one year ago, two years ago, it's COVID year, so there's no real, real, it could have been four years ago, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but a talk about looking at the CEOs of, of the top 200 leading age Ziegler CEOs, and that there were maybe four out of 200 were people of color. Um, it doesn't mean that there wasn't other diversity in the, in the top 200. Uh, but what it does say is that the diversity that exists amongst the direct care staff across this country in nursing homes, assisted living communities, retirement communities, pay, I mean, pay, you name it, home health agencies, by and large, we know the ethnicity, the racial background, as well as the gender makeup is by and large female and, and, and people of color. That is not the case for leadership. It has been that way um, since time immemorial. And ironically, um, we had an intern at Kendall last year, and I, I, I gave him a, a special side project. I said, I want you to interview some of the recruiters out there and ask them, what are they seeing amongst the boards? You know, it was anecdotal. It wasn't anything scientific about it. And so what Thomas found was that, yes, Every single board out there, every single organization is saying we need to have an inclusion strategy. We're going to hire this person and dump all this stuff on them, and they're going to solve everything from a DEI uh, uh, perspective. Um, 
But what, what, what Thomas really found, which is what I suspected, is that there is a lot of change in, in what's being said about inclusion. And there's a, in every position specification that for all the CEOs in the great retirement that we're seeing right now, um, everyone talks about diversity and inclusion for the most part. Uh, I get a call for many, many times when there is a recruitment for after a CEO is retired. And um, what I found is that the, the power dynamics in the decision-making infrastructure has not changed at all. And that's what Thomas found when he talked to recruiters. Like, so you're seeing that boards want to talk about diversity. Yes. Have you found that boards are hiring more diverse individuals? Absolutely wow. not. Wow. The hiring practices have not changed one minutia. Uh, it is still mostly white men that are going into these roles that are being retired from uh, by white men. And so what does that really mean for our field? Because what does that really mean for our field? And I guess the, the shortest, shorter answer to your question is, is that I think there's far more awareness. You know, a lot changed during Black Lives Matter summer la uh, um, in 2020. Um, and the world started to recognize and acknowledge, because I don't think people were starting to see it for the first time. This was not a matter of blindness. This was a matter of, 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 of choosing to, to, to see or not see and choosing to acknowledge or not acknowledge systemic racism in, in a whole bunch of different pockets of our society and even the very foundation of it. You know, to be able to recognize, um, I said this I don't think it was controversial, but during one of the sessions at uh, the Pioneer Network this week, I said, you know, when your staff, that are, that are many of which people of color, when they see on TV, um, you know, an ins insurrection where individuals are, are, are storming the Capitol building, you may think to yourself, this has nothing to do with you, but it has absolutely everything to do with each one of us that are serving in this field, because to have an individual that clearly individuals that are entering and doing causing insurrection that that are rooted in racist ideologies um, for someone that shows up that next day on January 7th, that's a person of color and to see on TV someone, a white male say, this is our house. But to know that slaves built it, that, that to, to me, that is a different dynamic than saying, well, you know, I mean, that's not really we're here to serve the residents. Okay. Yes, we are. Who's doing the serving? Direct care staff. Do you care about your direct care staff? Because you're asking them to care for residents. And if you're not showing them that you're showing up when the world around us is saying they don't matter, if you're not countering that with something, well, you shouldn't be surprised by your difficulties with recruitment. Uh -huh. You shouldn't be surprised by turnover rates. And, and you shouldn't be surprised when kind of the, the age old, well, you know, it's a tenure and it's a burnout. You can say that all you want, but we've got organizations out here right now that can't even get agency staff, you know, let wow. alone their own staff. And if you have not taken a hard look at in the mirror and decided, are we really showing that we care about the individuals that we are asking to care so deeply for older adults? And I think the answer is no, by and large. And I think that's what we're seeing in our industry, that there becomes uh, certainly become a rejection, particularly amongst the younger individuals that have entered the field for, with very good reason. Um, but what we find over and over again, whether 
my doing it in consulting work myself, giving speak, giving talks, or just in conversations like this, that we're finding over and over again that companies are are so thankful for the long tenured staff. They stuck it out. They stay, which is awesome, but they aren't going to be there forever. And you see in many organizations such a gap in age now of people in their 60s and 70s um, working in organizations and then people in their 20s and 30s. But the 20s and 30s are being seen as not resilient enough. They don't stick around. They don't have a work ethic. And those folks in 20s and 30s are saying, why would I do? Why would I commit my life to this? Like I, I, I'm watching you having spent 20, 30 years maybe in the same organization, and I don't feel that I'm cared about for all of me. I'm asked to kind of keep it at, leave it at the door, Veronica, don't bring that in here today. All right, wrap up your hair. All of those signs we've seen over and over again in our industry of not accepting people that are doing the day-to-day work for who they are in their whole selves. And I think we're starting to pay a price for that now. Of course, if you look at the staffing shortages, uh, that that's so clear, Marvell. What gets you most excited these days? Oh gosh, can't you tell? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, I know, it gets you riled up. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, you know, it's it's, it's and, and and I'm so glad you said that. So 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 when it comes to really passion, it, my passion is is not bricks and sticks building bricks and mortar communities you know my passion is around saying to individuals that are trying to figure out right now how am i going to care for my aging parent and support them while i have kids in college how am i going to as a as a operator provider um find solutions to workforce uh shortages by providing housing not just for for uh, folks working in our communities, but their fa- their full families. I think there was a New York Times article that just came out yesterday of of um, Sun Valley. I think Sun Valley, Idaho, uh, or maybe Iowa. I get I get those states confused. That was not Idaho. Yeah, Idaho. Um, that you know they have very wealthy parts of Sun Valley that have essentially homeless individuals that are working in the restaurants and in the hotels uh, because there's not enough housing, and it's like well. You built the hotel. It's not like it's un- unknown how to to have housing. So what? Where does the? In my opinion, I think my passion lies with understanding. We can create models that one break down the silos of socioeconomic segregation, race, ethnicity, appearance, uh, gender, g- uh, gender identification, sexual orientation. We can do that, but we have to start from a position of saying what we've been doing this entire time is no longer what older adults want, period. And so if we start from a place of saying we want to be able to support you where you are whenever. So if that means that we we have a, a, an at-home health management agreement, which is part of uh, the disruption that I think, not think, I know will be coming, is coming from Debbie Lawson, is that the approach is stay in Dallas, Texas, stay, stay in Seattle. We will coordinate and work with local resources to ensure that you have the vibrancy and continue the momentum that you've gained over a career and a lifetime, as long as you so choose. And 
oh, by the way, if you if you fall and end up in the emergency room, uh, we'll send an advocate to meet you there, to come to come help you navigate one of the scariest parts of our health system that older adults truly should never go to unless they are truly in a dire emergency because we the literature would show you that the outcomes are really not good in most any situation of an older adult going to the emergency room so my passion is now being able to say to a part of the market that still is really not targeted you know when you do the demo, when you do the um kind of marketing analysis i think most developers out there would say well no the way you get a, a, a retirement community sold or 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 filled up is um you know about 10 percent of the people that are age and income qualified are really going to be the ones that seriously consider moving in that means 90 percent of the people that could move into a retirement community this is a statistic that we've thrown around for for years we're going after a 10 percent sliver the 90 percent of the people that are left aren't going to just some other retirement community because they didn't like kendall or ingleside or human good they are staying home and they are the never movers, period. <laughs> they will never move into a community that promotes age segregation. They will never move into a community that does not have an inclusion strategy. They will never move into a community that does not understand that the older adult is not their full selves without everyone around them that they love. And so from my perspective, starting with a model that says 55 plus adult residential housing and being able to say to older adults, if you want to live in community, come as you are. If you have an adult child that supports you, then bring them on. So my passion really is around not just serving older adults, but saying we have an opportunity as, as, as a field, uh, as really an ethical um, call to action of if we truly do care about older adults, then that means we care about students, being in in and around in their midst we care about their children we care about their grandchildren we care about lgbtqia we care about every single aspect of being a human that's what the disruption is in my opinion because it changes really it from a a, a quote-unquote elder care system or a aging services system to a human system because that's what we're really talking about. And yeah. in my mind, that's a passion that, that will never burn out because uh, the need is always going to be there. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Marvell. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, Nancy. Thank you so much. Uh, this, this has been wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Glowing Older Podcast. 